Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Dee Robinson. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Dee Robinson is a serial entrepreneur that thrives in both the restaurant and retail industries and has vast experience growing well-known brands such as Hudson News, Ben & Jerry's, Frontera Grill, and many more. Today, she'll be sharing her incredible career story, the obstacles she's had to overcome, and her advice to listeners. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker. And today, at the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have the privilege of talking to serial entrepreneur D. Robinson. D, welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat. Thank you so very much, Lewis, and it's great to be here. Oh, we're so glad to have you. We are looking forward to a great conversation. So, D, you own several businesses. I mean, several. How would you describe? what you do to a stranger? Well, if there was a stranger coming up to me, I would tell him or her that what I do is I own and operate restaurants and retail in airports across the country. That's generally how I describe it. And then also consider that we also have some in tourist locations, but that's what I do, the bread and butter, retail and restaurants. So for someone who would be trying to dig a little deeper, would they be talking about concessions and restaurants? Uh, Absolutely. So we have restaurants and national and local brands, and then we have these great partnerships, for instance. I'm going to thank the audience for buying all those wonderful products out of the Hudson News stores throughout O'Hare. We have operations at O'Hare and the International Terminal, Domestic Terminal, Washington, Reagan, Boston. So yes, yeah, so we touched a few lives, but yes, they would be able to visit us in, in restaurants. And of course, there's a host of brands in the restaurant space. So how did you get into the airport environment? You know, we know a lot of uh, franchisees and people who own restaurants and things, but very few in this limited airport space. Great question. And and even related to your first one, um, we own franchises. We also license brands and we do joint ventures. And again, primarily in the airports. And um, I think what I would say about this journey I've been on, Lewis, is that I believe I see niches and then I see opportunities. And of course, I'll share a little bit about our airport experience. But I will say I got into this because I heard about Midway Airport and I um, wasn't an airport concessionaire at all. I had retail businesses after leaving my corporate job and I went after the opportunity. But I love to tell your audience as well that I went after that opportunity and I also did not get it. Even though I thought I had uh, hired the best firms to help us develop our RFP, request for proposal, I thought I had the best brand. I introduced Ben and Jerry's uh, to the airport space, but I didn't get it. And so I always like letting people know that uh, no does not mean uh, no. Uh, It might mean maybe and yes. And I had to learn a lot of things on that journey. And in fact, I will tell you, um, I talk about success in failure. 
I'm glad that I did not get that first airport concession because it forced me to learn how to navigate doing business in Chicago. Wow. So the you don't have just any brands. You have like like real major brands, uh, Hudson News, uh, Ben and Jerry's, uh, Epic Burger, uh, Frontier Grill, uh, Pot Bellies. I mean, so getting into the airport is one thing. Getting relationships and partnerships with these brands is a whole nother thing. That's like a double lift. Well, thank you for that. And you're right in that it's harder because you're bringing these national brands, local brands, but that was the move to um, in airports that they started to really look at national and then they started really moving to local brands. And again, that's about sort of identifying those opportunities and then finding the best of the best. At the end of the day, um, an airport wants to make sure that you're there driving business, right? So when you bring and adding that value. So our goal was one, we look for the best brands. Um, we're always about, you know, delighting the customer, elevating the dining experience. And so when I started thinking about the brands that I was bringing to the airport, I was approaching them, but also why? You know, why do you think you want to partner with Dean Robinson and then why this airport? But a lot of it had to do with one, understanding the market, where I thought the opportunities, where the sales are. Um, a lot of brands are running to airports now because if you think about operating on the street versus an airport, you can probably say it's five, maybe even 10 times the volume. And I'll tell you a story. I, entered, um, I literally uh, asked someone to introduce me to Rich Mailman. And, you know, let us entertain your brands, a quintessential uh, food operator restaurant tour. And I remember I got this call with him and then I shared with the person that I talked for a half hour with Rich Melman. They said, well, you must've had something to talk about if he gave you a half an hour of his time. But what I shared with Rich at the time was that I asked him what his best dollars per square foot was for his restaurants. And then I said, well, what if I can show you that you can actually double, triple that number? And I remember just having, you can always feel when someone's leaning in and that you're giving them something to consider. And they had looked at it before, but I'm all about metrics and measurements and sort of thinking about how we're gonna drive a business, what kind of sales we're gonna do. So I think that being able to go in, do projections, tell them what they could bring and what they would also get out of it led to a lot of the associations. So, so the, I know, uh, a little bit, uh, enough to know that each of those brands have their own processes and financial formulas, all right? Right. How do you keep up? First of all, how did you learn all of that? And how do you keep up with that in this ever-changing environment? Great question. So let me share this. Um, I did, first of all, I'm gonna always give um, kudos to my mom because my mom, uh, I named my company after her. So Robinson Hill, uh, Hill is my mother's maiden name, Robinson is mine. But I saw a woman who worked hard, Lewis, and multiple jobs doing various things, you know, these little entrepreneurial side businesses. She didn't think of herself as an entrepreneur. Uh, it was called, I'm taking care of my family. So the real drive for a lot of it, I just got to give to my mom. But with that said, I, I did go to Penn, I'm an economics major. I went to Kellogg for business school. Um, the thing that that brought me was a way to analyze data, but it is not something that somebody needs in order to succeed. 
because I always believe that you can find other resources to help you fill any gap that you may not have a skills gap. And so for me, it was understanding throughout the, out the gate how important having an accountant was. And then also understanding what your drivers are to sales. People have to understand how you make money and how to drive sales, right? And if you're not profitable. So we always looked at cost of you know, goods. You know, there may be five drivers on the cost side and um, for sales, laborers don't always be there, rent and all that. But we started just doing projections. And when we would do our performers, we'd look at it. And of course, then we have to bid. But we were always sort of looking at what's going to maximize our profitability in all of these spaces. And so when you bring a national brand or even a really popular local brand, you know, that's going to guarantee customers and that's going to, you know, drive sales. And then you got to also go about finding some of the best people. So as a black female entrepreneur, Mm. we can guess that there were some challenges or hurdles. What were some of them and how did you overcome them? Well, you know, here's what we face even today, that we show up and they don't always know why we're there and maybe don't even value that we are there. I love a quote by Ursula Burns who says, you know, um, um, they didn't know I was there. I, I told them I was there. So that's, you know, they didn't know I because I, but they did know because I told them. And I think what she was saying there is that, you know, one, you do have to speak up. Um, and we as women of color in particular, um, and what people forget is that we walk in a room and they're assuming that we aren't there deservingly so, but they forget one thing, that we have worked really, really hard to be in that room, so we should be considered. But the other part of that is if they wanna undervalue us because we walk there and we're there, don't take that personally, don't see it as a negative, use it, leverage it. So if somebody wants to underestimate who you are, that's not your problem, that's theirs. Your job is to show up. But I really think that being underestimated, oftentimes walking in the space and then having always proved yourself, I think whether you're an entrepreneur or even in corporate America, you know, we say people go to a job, but we go with a responsibility. We carry the weight of what we do and how we do it um, when we walk anywhere. And we just got to own that. It's not a negative, you know, if they want to, but we have an opportunity to show up in really great ways and then make sure that we're also bringing others because I'll never want to be the only one in a room. Oftentimes I was. I want to see multiple folks, but it's our job to also pull them forward with us. So you, you started your career in corporate America, but you quickly, you quickly made a, a quick turn and became an entrepreneur. Tell us why you sort of chose that route versus trying to ride the corporate wave. Well, I did make that decision. And I will say out the gate that everyone should not do what I did because I jumped. Uh, I, I truly jumped. But there were a couple of things that I want to mention. First, I didn't see many people up in the senior management when I started. When I left business school, my first job was with Johnson & Johnson Consumer Products out in New Jersey. And then I left there to go to Leo Burnett. All great, great companies. And um, but what I'll also say about that is I was working my butt off. I was literally um, just challenged to um, you know, make a way, make sure that um, I did the work, did well. And ultimately though, Lewis, a lot of people think, well, 
you took a big risk. I just realized that it was more of a risk for me to stay than to, mm-hmm. yes, than to leave. And when I also recognized I did not want anyone to have that kind of control over my future. We've seen many people in corporate America rely on a corporate job, some maybe even living check to paycheck to paycheck. And that's fine. But then when that rug is pulled from under your feet, you know, you got to be prepared to pivot. And so have we done all the things that we need to to make sure if those things happen, what's your plan B? But um, there was one night at Leo Burnett, I was at my desk, I had worked 30 days straight. And I sat at my desk and finally said, what is my hourly rate? Because, you know, we all think we get these great salaries and in aggregate, they might look good on paper. But I will ask your audience to do one thing for me. I will ask them to take a look at how many hours they're working, look at their salary and come up with their true hourly rate. In that moment, it was an important moment in my life to understand that, well, if I'm going to, I just might as well go work for McDonald's or something and not have the health and stress concerns that I had. And so I said it was just time for me to leave. But it was that moment. And then I wasn't really taking a big chance. I mean, I could go do something else. So, you know, I wasn't married at the time or with kids. I said, if not now, then when? It's something I oftentimes ask myself. But in that moment, I realized that I needed to leave. And I could see that at any moment I could be without a job. Well, I didn't want that. And too many people are living in fear of losing a job. And, and that's unfortunate. And, and I love talking to people on how I see they can manage that. But that's ultimately that there were not many people that I saw like me. And then that I did not want to turn over my life to someone else who may not have valued me and the work that I was contributing. Speaking of not seeing many people like you, uh, you sit on several boards, all right? Some for-profit boards, some non-profit boards. Tell us about that journey to board service. And I use that term board service. Well, you know that it is board service because (laughs) it requires many, many, many hours and you truly have to be committed to it. And um, one of my early boards was serving on the Illinois Gaming Board and loved the work. I served four terms, the volume of data, massive. And I'm one of those folks, Lewis, I have to prepare for everything. So I'm going to burn the oil on both ends to get the work done. But it's a highly regulated industry and also a huge responsibility and an honor. And then I also then pivoted to serving on the Wintrust Bank Board. I named those first two because those are uh, regulated industries and those are the heavy lift ones. Uh, but enjoyed it because one, um, I do like compliance matters and things of that nature. But the real sweet spot for me, Lewis, is the not-for-profit work that I do and also serving on a public company board. And the reason the public company boards matter is that you can really then be a strategic advisor. I love looking at challenges and opportunities and advice on those matters, whether you're trying to drive growth or whether you're dealing with new products or growing into new markets. So I love being able to advise on that. And then, then of course, the things that pull at my heart is the not-for-profit boards and the one that I really have leaned in on is uh, the work I do with the PGA. Uh, so I am I'm on the board of PGA Reach, it's the charitable foundation for the PGA. And we have four pillars, uh, the PGA Junior League, we have also PGA Hope that helps veterans 
And then we have PGA Works, that is really the DEI piece. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And we have a place to play. And um, I recently stepped into the chair role of PGA Works. And I do that work because something is important here. We want to make sure that we gain access to anything. We want our kids and anyone who wants to do something, I want them to go out there and realize their dreams. So when you think about it, and I talk about this often, we've got football, baseball, even soccer and basketball. I played basketball in school. We can just get a court in the city and run up and down. But then you look at golf, um, you know, golf clubs, all of those things, right? And a lot of people can't play. I want anybody that wants to do anything in this life to be able to do it. And I use golf as a platform because first of all, it helps develop relationships that are critical, critical. All the things we talked about, it's not an I, it's a we. Somebody helped me with that. But the joy that I have in being able to make sure that people of color have what they need if they want to play, whether it is playing in our collegiate championship. Our championship was um, developed because at, in, up until 1961, African-Americans could not play in the PGA. And so they developed their own championship. There are kids out there in this world who are looking at the things that you and I are doing and because they see us, they might be motivated to try. They look at golf, you know, Tiger had a lot of resources and he's done an amazing job for this game. But there are people out there still saying, I wish I could, but they can't. And there's stories upon stories. I mean, I talked to these young kids, the fact that our last uh, championship was televised for the very first time, talking to the kids and knowing they were on a championship course, they were playing it. And by the way, they were good. I couldn't play and, and hold muster with any of them. But that's the joy is that being able to open doors for people when, when you can help. I was just honored this past weekend up in Milwaukee, MKE fellows, these talented African-American men, the work that you're doing as well. You know, these are the things that we know we can do. We know that we can make a difference in their lives and we do it when we can. And the other piece of that is I love the idea of us being able to shorten the runway. You and I know our journeys, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want everyone to have to go through what I had to go through. If I can shorten that for somebody, I want to do that. But I can do that through also some of the work I do, and especially through the PGA. So let's talk about the public boards for a minute. Sure. Uh, I know a lot of successful people. I mean, <laughs> really successful. Uh, subject matter experts at the top of their game. But most of them are not, are not public boards. That's right. What is the key to sort of cracking that code? Because we know they could add value to these boards. No what is that key, or as I would say, that dirty little secret into getting on some of these corporate boards? A great, great question, Lewis. And I will say this. First of all, we just to your point, there is not a pipeline issue of talent out there. I know CEOs, I'm gonna name a friend of mine, uh, Rodney Williams, who is the CEO of Belvedere. And I know you know him. There are many like him and we can go down a list. And here's what I will tell you, but it is a network problem. It's that we are not crossing um, paths with many decision makers oftentimes, and we need to figure that out. For me, every board that I'm on, is because someone knew D. Robinson 
Or I also made a point if I identified a company that I wanted to be affiliated with, I nurtured those relationships. Um, I'm being considered for another board right now. And I was referred to this board by someone at Goldman Sachs, Ileana Wolf, who's doing a lot of work to help change that dynamic you just discussed. And I, out of the blue, got a call from her, she knew of me. I just also joined the SPAC board, which is phenomenal. I'm a member of C200, guess what? Someone who's a member of C200 knew me. She called me up, asked me if I'd be considerate. I was interviewed and I'm now on that board. So I think what I would recommend to the audience is a couple of things. Um, there's an exercise of not just saying I want to sit on a board that's too narrow, right? too broad, I should say. Identify a few industries that you think you might have an interest in or have expertise in, to your point. Maybe then identify two or three companies in each of those industries and then target those companies and start thinking about how you can add value who you might know. The relationships cannot be um, undervalued. You know, one of the things, the, and you said it earlier, sometimes we look to be recognized, right? And what it really takes is saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here. All right. And I think we have to sort of be uh, proactive instead of reactive. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think even as we look at what's happening in this world now when it comes to racial and wealth disparity, uh, we can't be reactive, we need to be proactive, but you're right. I think looking at opportunities and um, to your point, I'm here. Also, are, do people actually know that you're looking? Have, who have you told? I would ask them, who have you told lately that I am interested in serving on a board? Or how many of the people that you know sit on boards actually know that you're looking? I mean, those are easy questions, yet hard ones, because that means I got to be proactive. But to your point, um, recognize yourself. Don't mm -hmm. wait for somebody else to do it, right? And, and, and help them see that you can bring something to the board. I have two major ones that I'm looking at right now, and I'm actually putting a hold because I really would love to sit on this one in particular. And I'm going to pursue that to the end. I'll, hopefully, I can report back to you that uh, we actually secured that or there'll be some announcement. But this is something important. Everybody wants to do this. But there is something I want to add to this. Um, I interviewed Suzanne Burns. for uh, She's the global CEO of Spencer Stewart recently. And what she was able to share with the audience is that there are very, very few public company board seats, certainly in the Fortune 100, let's just say 100, 500,000. Part of that is they don't have term limits and you gotta hope that somebody ages out. And so with that said, there's a sweet spot in private companies. And so don't think that you gotta go for, you know, the, the top firms out there. There's amazing work to be done and there's many opportunities. And I think the private uh, company boards are really where you can you know, see opportunity. So we here at Waymaker believe that every successful person has had a Waymaker. Ooh, yes. Tell us about some of your Waymakers. 
So I already mentioned one. My mom is indeed my way maker. And she shared the stories over the years. And honestly, Lewis, my mom, I should be so frustrated with her because I would go to her for help or advice. And she would say, you will figure it out. You will figure it out. And many times we want people to hand us the answer on a silver plate. My mom didn't do that. I also think it's because she understood how hard she had it. And, um, but little did I know she was teaching me how to be resourceful and um, valuable lesson. One of the most important lessons from her though, and I carry it to this day and it's allowed me to be the entrepreneur, the serial entrepreneur, is that she said, no one ever said it would be easy. No one ever said it would be easy. Some of us give up too fast. Some of us think it's supposed to be easy. You know, we like, oh, I don't want to do that. And then we let ourselves off the hook. Um, but when you embrace that concept, so when it gets hard, because it will, if you're determined enough to get this, if this is your dream, you're going to figure it out and you're going to stay with it. And, you know, you know, I'm, I got a, a girl crushing you on all the things that you do. And I know you will have story after story to tell us about how hard it was, the things you encountered, but I promise you, I know that you got focused and you looked at the resources you needed to make sure it happened and you figured it out. Um, so she truly is my wayfinder. Um, I talk about finding a way. I remember one of our early conversations and why we connected because it is about finding a way. They can find a way about dealing with these issues in corporate America and the disparities that exist there. And you talk about, I think Melanie Hobson talks about this as well. I've been saying it for so long. We keep talking about DEI, we keep talking about inclusion. That's all we're doing. And if you held them accountable and you make them maybe tied it to their compensation, I bet you they figure out a way to uh, make sure that there were more people of color and management roles. And, and you know, they're moving more towards diversity in the board room. We still have a lot of work when it comes to the C-suite. So you've started so many businesses. Uh, we're in a time right now with COVID, it's, it's got the world sort of tossed and turned and, the, and then also racial inequality. Give our audience three things on starting and maintaining a business during these particular times? The first and first one um, is faith. You have to have faith. And I say I'm a faithful entrepreneur. I built a company on faith. Like I said, when things got hard, you know, hard it was faith that you know God never gave me more than I could handle and I was going to figure it out. Uh, we have a multi-million dollar company and during COVID, you know, we were hit hard. You remember, I'm in the airport space. We shuttered every single business. So the faith that you're going to find a way, the faith that you're going to be able to potentially pivot, um, but you also must act. We talked about being proactive a moment ago. I spent COVID, well, what I call my COVID projects, and we'll talk about that. But I would say faith is one. Um, again, resilience. That's what we were built. You know, I say we were built to slay dragons, and we got to be reminded that that's who we are. We're built that way. And so start looking at where new opportunities exist. 
and then and lean into those things. Um, I wrote books during COVID. I started a new business during COVID, right? And so it's really about figuring out how um, you're going to be resilient and that this is a no-fail mission and also that you have to be resilient. I mean, the resilience is important and then determined. I was determined that I always had this uh, model, uh, Lewis. So I know what my net worth is. And so for me, once I got to a place where I wanted to be, I said, this got to be just my bottom bar. So I was always building companies and opportunities to ensure that that didn't change much, right? So that's a different mindset. Um, so I would just say faith, determination, and of course, um, resilience would be the things that I would say, but don't be afraid to pivot. Don't be afraid to change who you are or what you did. I've had to do that from the very beginning. They are all gonna be home runs, but you just gotta get up there to bat. And right now there's just a huge amount of opportunities out there. And I'm excited about some of the things we're doing, but I, that's what I would tell them all is uh, to just really think about it, um, those three. But something I must say, that's been part of my journey is that there are a couple of assets you got to manage. One, reputation, right? You, I say, forget your balance sheet. You must manage your reputation. That's the asset that truly matters. On this journey is that you were known to be good operators. What story are they actually telling about you and managing that? And so that's really important. Um, I'm amazed how many people on this journey uh, can't do the things I do. I'm in regulated industries. I get background checks all the time. Could you imagine? I couldn't be here if there was something that I did in my background back in the, my younger days that would literally prevent me from exploring so many opportunities. So for you, those that are particularly young who might see this, particularly start thinking in, about the choices you make. The other thing is this mind. We must manage the chatter in our heads. Um, mm -hmm. On this journey, this, this fear of what could go wrong, the doubt, the uncertainty. A lot of the work that I love doing is we talked about the not-for-profit. You work with those young men, and I want to touch them and hug them, by the way, because they're sitting there with so much uncertainty, fear, and they don't think they are enough. Well, they are but it's always in their head. And if you don't believe you can, you won't. Um, but the book that I'm working on now, Courage is a Choice, is about being courageous, stepping forward outside of your com comfort zone. You and I know that's where the growth comes when we start looking outside. But if we stay too close and we aren't willing to try new things or even fail, then we're going to get stuck and we're not going to live that life of joy, fulfillment, and a purpose. And we've been able to find our way there by doing the things that we love, doing the things that we've been willing to take a chance on, but we also were willing to hear. I call it the courage to hear. Those voices inside you that are trying to tell you and that lean forward and to give you this, that's something that that's God trying to talk to you. So you got to find that time, that little quiet space, but most of the ideas I've had over time, Louis, frankly, is when I've taken that time to listen and look. So to that point, how do you keep raising the bar for yourself after having so much success? Because, you know, a lot of people, they take their ball or they take their briefcase and they just go home and count and spend their money. 
but you keep raising the bar for yourself. What is that thing on the inside that keeps you so driven? Well, thank you for thinking I'm highly successful. I don't know if I've always agreed with that, but I do know that I'm blessed that I do know. And I will say this, um, my mom always said, leave people in places better than you found them. So when you're driven to do better and more, particularly for others, you know, there's no stopping, right? You know, you know that there is more for you to do. And for me, I, when I see opportunities and think that's what's been my path, I sort of lean into that. And as I mentioned, uh, during COVID, I wrote some books. So um, food insecurity matters to me, for instance. So I was just like, what can I do? So I started a project called Project Clean Pantry. We can start in small ways in helping people, right? So I'm saying, go in your, your pantry, go pull all those cans out and put them in a box. I gave them a whole toolkit, right? Still do that. Um, I've always wanted to write a cookbook. And, and so during COVID, um, I wrote the cookbook. I wrote it also, Lewis, because I wanted to find a way to help my team. I wanted to raise money. Uh, we did not let anyone suffer through uh, COVID. It, it, I was happy that we were getting back to work. I was like, this well is going to get uh, a little uh, dry soon. But it wasn't their fault that the pandemic happened. And, but we as a company, we needed to help them. Um, and then, you know, then I wrote the uh, the other book called Snap It. And this is about this whole idea. I had I created a band that helped us control that chatter. So when I said I couldn't, I said, oh, yes, I can. Or I will find a way. Or taking the negative and turning that that to a positive thought. And then, of course, now what I'm doing is leveraging my background in the restaurant space. And, um, you know, you know, I'm working on a spirits brand right now. And um, I'm, I'm thrilled, you know, but this all came about because I was thinking about what's next. How do we help? And I can't wait to share that with you. But that's sort of why you keep moving the bar up and up and up, because you have opportunity to continue to help people. And, and if we can continue to touch and make a difference in the lives of others, we're going to be, you know, amply rewarded with just this abundance that God promised us. Because I always said that wants us then to have an abundant life. And that's in not just money, because I didn't start out wanting to do money. I just decided to go do what D needed to go do, what D loved to do. And I just kept leaning. And honestly, I looked up one day and things were just starting to, to move in different directions. And I was very blessed. But I do think we all have an opportunity to sort of contribute in some small way. And I think that's what God expects of us. And so I just use that as sort of my compass of how do I go out and help? So final question, and, and people ask me this question all the time. How did you find your purpose? It's a journey. It's a journey. And here's what I would say about that. Um, I have seen my mom who raised four kids on her own and how she worked. So I have a work ethic instilled in me. I oftentimes will say, when you see a kid, see yourself in that kid and know what he or she is feeling. And, and recognize, I say all the time, I see myself in them. And then in that moment, that's when you know you have an opportunity to make a difference. And that's just been the path. And even when I was hiring people, I was saying we didn't hire one, we were hiring the family. Because think about when you create a job, which is something I've always enjoyed, we were actually, changing somebody's life. And so also part of that is this, 
I have a job to demonstrate what you and I know we do. We, we just go out and do it. I pray to God that we are great role models for others. And when I was trying to do all this hiring and when people were putting and doing all these other things, Lewis, right? I'm like, well, D-Wade, you can keep trying to do that. Or you better serve by doing your best, setting a standard of excellence and being that and, and make sure you are the role model and you help other people. And there's a spirit of us. We give. That's a universal law. When we understand that as we give, the universe gives back to us, and then we live a life of integrity, I mean, that's powerful. Um, you got to really think about what universe have you created around you. And I will tell you, when somebody's having a really hard time in their lives, I will say they seem to look at their lives and see what they're depositing and what changes they have to make. Dee, thank you so much for this. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, you clearly deserve all the awards and congratulations on the award you just received. Uh, thank you so much for sharing with our audience. We appreciate you. We appreciate your businesses because all of your business engage with our consumers and customers. Uh, good luck on your next project. And uh, let's keep in touch because I think our Waymaker audience wants to hear from you. So thank you so much for being a part. Thank you for allowing me this absolute honor. I, as I said earlier, you know, you are doing some great things and if there's anything I can ever do to help you, uh, please let me know, but keep making a way, keep finding a way. And I thank you for all that you're doing. How can our uh, audience keep in touch with you? A couple of ways. Um, my uh, on Twitter, I'm at DM Robinson. On LinkedIn, I am DEEM Robinson as well. And um, you can reach out to me anytime. I do respond, uh, particularly if it's through LinkedIn. Um, I always tell people, give me a few. I always say, give me a little time at times, right? Uh, but I um, will love to hear from them. And uh, thank you again for this opportunity to talk to them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a Thank great day. You do the same. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Dee Robinson. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.